This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Alex Chavez, author of the award-winning book, Sounds of Crossing, Music, Migration, and the Oral Poetics of Huapango Aribeño, uh, published as part of the Refiguring American Music Series uh, by Duke University Press in 2017. Alex Chavez is an artist, scholar, producer, and the Nancy O'Neill Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Notre Dame, where he is also a faculty fellow of the Institute for Latino Studies. As a cultural anthropologist trained in linguistic anthropology, ethnomusicology, and folklore, Chavez's research explores articulations of Latinx sounds and orality in relation to race, placemaking, and the intimacies that bind lives across physical and cultural borders. He has consistently crossed the boundary between performer and ethnographer in the realms of both academic research and publicly engaged work as an artist and producer. Chavez has recorded and toured with his own music projects, composed documentary scores, most recently the Emmy Award-winning El Despertar, uh, and collaborated with Grammy Award-winning artists. He has published widely in various academic journals and public venues. His most recent publication is the article Gender, Ethnonationalism, and the Anti-Mexicanist Trope, published in the 2021 winter issue of the Journal of American Folklore. He is co-editor of the forthcoming edited volume, Ethnographic Refusals, Unruly Latinidades, published by SAR Press, which grows out of an advanced seminar he co-chaired at the School for Advanced Research in 2019. In 2020, he was named one of 10 Mellon Emerging Faculty Leaders by the Institute for Citizens and Scholars, formerly known as the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation, and also recently concluded a National Endowment for the Humanities long-term fellowship at the Newberry Library in Chicago. He currently serves as governor on the, as a governor on the Chicago uh, chapter board of the Recording Academy. Hello, Alex, and uh, welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. 
Hello, uh, Wendia. Uh, it's, I'm really grateful to, to be here and to be in conversation with you. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate you accepting it. And uh, to get us started, if you can just tell us a, a bit about yourself. Yes, so I, uh, I'm originally from, from Texas, from, from West Texas, a um, little town called the Midland. I feel like most people uh, associate Midland with its neighboring town, Odessa, so Midland, Odessa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so small West Texas towns, you know, red dirt towns, a lot of cotton out there, and oil, oil country. Um, and uh, the reason I, I grew up out there, my, my parents are both... Uh, from Mexico, and they migrated uh, to the U.S. Uh, they're very young. Uh, my mother was like 13. She's uh, she was originally from the state of Zacatecas. My father, uh, he's 15, 16 years old uh, when he migrated, and he's he's from the state of Querétaro. Uh, and so they they migrated, and uh, you know I I was they met out in West Texas. Uh, different circumstances as to how they ended up out there. Uh, largely questions of family and work, and uh, yeah, I, I I was you know subsequently born out there and grew up out there, and uh, I uh, you know my background in that regard is you know having grown up in in a kind of the cultural and sort of kind of social milieu of of being in a in a migrant community. Uh, mainly Mexican migrant community, and and uh, you know, in the 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 context for that, at least growing up, um, you don't realize it, I guess, when you're in it. But uh, but I do recall, and you know, the context for it in terms of what I subsequently realized sort of shaped me, or or one the kinds of connections among uh, family and extended family that uh, you know connect you know particularly that place to particular parts of mexico and 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 what that means is in terms of people going back and forth and, and different kinds of restricted mobilities uh whether you know undocumented or have work permits or etc uh, but going back and forth as labor migrants um and the connections to mexico and to you know really getting a sense of you know both places or both countries kind of being connected and, and both at once being home in a way to, to the people around me. Uh, and so, you know, that I think was very much part of my experience growing up. And the other was um, this kind of larger sense of, of citizenship or, you know, what it means to be a migrant in, in relation to kind of society at large. And Clearly, as a kid, you don't think about it in these ways, but you do realize, at least for me, that, well, for a good part of my childhood, my mother and father were undocumented. So, you know, that experience, uh, you know, even again, you're in it as a kid and, and you see the struggles and you see, you know, the the daily challenges that, that, that people face, in this case, my parents and other family um, and, you know, that, that sort of thing really shapes you in terms of your understanding of, you know, who they are, uh, you know, what, what sort of, how they live their lives, uh, what becomes meaningful, um, you know, and then for me, having to kind of find my way through the world as a, as a child of migrants, uh, and, 
and what that meant, you know, at the level of, you know, school or, or being bilingual and that like, you know, I know a lot of folks have this experience where you become a translator for your parents as a kid, uh, you know, you know, things of that nature. And then, and then the sort of broader kind of bicultural experience too, right. Of, of being, you know, Mexican heritage in the United States and, and growing up with, you know, this sort of worlds of sort of, uh, cultural influence, you know, um, American, U.S. American, Mexican, the connections in between. And yeah, I mean, I, I grew up out West Texas and that was sort of my world. And I, uh, subsequently, once I uh, graduated uh, high school, I, I found myself at University of Texas at Austin. So it's still in Texas, but uh, the state capital and going to school at, at, at UT. Uh, and, um, you know, when is it's kind of unique, I guess, my, my situation around around my relationship to University of Texas, and that is that, you know, I, I went there for, you know, undergraduate, um, you know, for university, I and I studied Mexican-American studies and uh, what they call government there, which is you know, political science, um, but, um, and we can get into this, but due to a number of circumstances in terms of my interests and the work that I would subsequently end up doing, particularly doctoral work, uh, I... I ended up staying at, at UT for my graduate work, which again, uh, because my I mentioned it's unique because it, it's not um, too common, right? I feel like right. folks go yeah. to yeah, folks go to a place to go to college and then go to graduate school somewhere else. It, it was just a set of circumstances as to why I, it just felt kind of right to to stay there, and so so I did. But um, but yeah, that's a little bit about where I grew up. Uh, you know, West Texas, that sort of experience for me of kind of being part of this migrant community and and how that shaped me uh, in part right and i appreciate you you know just sharing a little bit about that experience of you know that it was but you know pursuing graduate school it, it is typically the norm that you go somewhere else right different from your undergraduate institution i mean i remember when i was making that decision i really wanted to stay at my undergraduate institution it was phenomenal for what i wanted to do but then my advisor was like, no, you got to go somewhere else or you, ne- or you can never come back, right? But something that I always mention with the students that I advise is, uh, and this this goes on to, I think, uh, eventually careers that we pursue too, is it's all about fit, you know, finding what works for you, right? <laughs> the the strategy for success, in my opinion, of, of finding either what's the right graduate program or the right job or opportunity is, is not uh, necessarily looking at a list of the best places to go or the best jobs to do, but taking into consideration one's, you know, own needs, both uh, personal as well as your, your professional aspirations and, and finding that best place that fits you, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, and one aspect of that too, that's really important that sort of plays into, you know, my decision and, you know, my, my story in, in, in that way is, you know, you, you should try and make that decision based on everything that you mentioned. But a, a part of that, or, or, or one dimension of, of that, is you know, what are the questions that you're asking in terms of research, um, uh-huh. and you know, what institution, what place, uh, you know, that you feel where, where you can 
you know, really pursue that, that sort of those, those questions, the passion you have for that work topically, uh, et cetera. And, and that's largely a question of, yes, the program, you know, depending on what you're studying, but also who's there to work with. Right. And yeah. so, mm-hmm. and then, you know, what, what's the sort of, you know, historically maybe what, what might, the kind of intellectual landscape that you might find at, at a place where you feel like you can, you know, you really want to find your way through. And um, I, that to me, you know, should should be of, of utmost importance. You know, I think, you know, I, I had the opportunity to go other places, you know, that, that I was, that I applied and was accepted to, but it just, you know, made sense to to stay at Texas, but um, uh-huh. for for these reasons, uh, but uh, you know, and and again, I mean, I, I mean, that's that's my my story. That was my right. my experience. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, when you talk about place and place making, so much uh, in in the book, which uh, we'll get into, um, but it, it sounds like to me that you know, place is essential, right? Too for this. When I just looking forward to, I'm not sure how early, and perhaps you can tell us, you know, when did this project start to form? Like how, how early did you have an idea, right? That your research say was going to be tied to um, not just central Texas, but that, you know, being near the border and, and, uh, you know, being able to travel, you know, frequently, you know, uh, to Mexico, right? And uh, I don't know. So how much did that factor, did that factor into it as well? Uh, Did you have an idea that early as an undergrad that, that works similar to this is what you wanted to do? You know, no, I, I, yeah. I did, I did know that I, I just, at this, since I was a kid, I was, you know, passionate about school and learning and the kind of process of discovery, uh, when you're interested in something and academically. And, and so I, you know, I got a sense immediately once I got to college that I, 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 I wanted to, to go to graduate school you know, and I think part of that realization was also that um, I was fortunate, you know, when I got to college that uh, I, I found a really amazing community of, of, you know, of, you know, student activists, um, people doing community work uh, that had been connected to Austin historically uh, for a long time. Um this kind of legacy of kind of civil rights, particularly like Mexican American uh-huh. Chicano civil rights kind of, uh, you know, work and organizing that was very much connected to university. And, you know, so whether it was a number of organizations run by students of color or, you know, the kind of Mecha or, or even just like the Center for Mexican American Studies, all, all these, you know, sorts of, uh, you know, different, you know, uh, kind of slices of kind of uh, the community of, of folks that was doing this kind of work. Uh, and I found myself immediately connected to, you know, to, to, you know, to this, to this scene, to this community, people doing, you know, social justice organizing. And um, as an undergraduate, but what was really, I guess my point is what was really kind of, um, among other things, but what was really impactful was that, there were a lot of graduate students also kind of in community with undergraduates, which I, you uh, know, is not, is not typical. I right say. now. Like, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I, I got to meet a really amazing graduate students who were studying, were studying everything from, you know, history to anthropology to, 
you know, sociology or, or education who were, you know, there side by side with undergrads, you know, organizing on ca- on and off campus. And, you know, it was through my connections with, with you know, with these older students, these graduate students who were, you know, I, I sort of discovered what, like what graduate school was and wh- what did that mean and, you know, got some sense of, of that process as one of kind of training and education. And I, I kind of knew immediately, like, I, I you know, I want to, I want to keep going to school and do that, but I didn't gotcha. necessarily, yeah. yeah, I didn't necessarily know in what, uh-huh. uh, okay. y- you know, but, um, but I guess, so that's one aspect, right? Like, how, <laughs> how, like, oh, graduates, like, un, you know, I guess one thing I didn't mention before is that being, you know, first generation, uh, you know, child of, migrants i'm also first generation in my immediate family and actually largely my extended family to go to college so i you know don't i had no point of reference to like what what is it to go to graduate school much you know so, right yeah. so it was through this process um of kind of collective mentorship i suppose in this community of folks that i learned what what that meant what that was and so you know so that but then you know, I guess to even go back a little further to to kind of address your question around like why this topic. Um, you know, I come from a musical family. Uh, my my father is a musician, um, who uh, you know, plays multiple instruments, but mainly his instruments guitar, and he sings. And he uh, played music professionally for a long time as well. Um, he. Uh, and then so I always surrounded my, not just music in the house, you know, as, as he and, and my mother were sort of music appreciators, but also him as a musician and, and sort of that being part of my world growing up. And so, um, you know, and, and his father and and his grandfather, so my grandfather and great grandfather were were musicians as well. So I'm a fourth generation mu- musician, but so, you know, being part of a musical family, you know, was part of, you know, my, my experience growing up. And so I started playing music when I was really young, uh, a piano at first, and then picked up guitar later. And then, you know, once I hit my teenage years, I think with a little bit more of consciousness, I started as a student, started to gravitate toward and want to learn traditional Mexican musics, among them uh, Huapango, which, you know, from the region where my father's from in Querétaro, like that's one of, you know, one of the styles of music that's that's from there, that, that's that's part of that, that region, and that is, you know, I guess ostensibly part of my musical heritage. Um, and by that point, I also had this sense and understanding that my grandfather and great-grandfather played Huapango. Like they, they were Huapango musicians. Um, way back when and so yeah with a bit more kind of understanding and consciousness when i was you know a, um a teenager i sort of got this you know kind of sense and desire of wanting to learn and pick up some of these instruments and learn some of that style and and so i did i kind of embarked on that journey uh and part of which was really learning in Mexico, uh, you know, being in West Texas, there was really no community of musicians that played the style or that were familiar with it. But when we would go back to Mexico, to Querétaro, uh, you know, I, I would I would seek out musicians, family, friends that were musicians and just, uh, you know, 
taking lessons and learning and and that's where my journey began in, in terms of just um you know getting close to this world of music making uh, uh-huh. but as a student so fast forward when i'm in college um you know going to school and uh you know being involved in and you know sort of this kind of uh, kind of political organizing and and all the rest that I was mentioning before and getting a sense of what graduate school was that's sort of the background to these different experiences I was having as uh, a student and a musician in in Austin, Texas. So Austin, you know, famous for, you know, having a quite vibrant live music scene and and sort of just scene of of musicians and, and kind of the infrastructure for music making. Uh, live and otherwise and a whole host of communities that do stuff there you know from rock to to blues to you know all kinds of musica latina traditional and otherwise and so i yeah i started playing music with other people and by myself uh was in a couple of projects long term uh but you know one thing that i was doing i did start playing to traditional music a bit and you know through that world in Austin, you know, you meet people and you network and all the rest. And someone, a friend, was you know, sort of let me know that uh, uh, there were Wapango musicians in in Austin, which you know, huh. sort of blew yeah, it was blew my mind because I, I, right. I, you know, you know, my taken for granted sort of cultural atlas about where this music existed, particularly Wapango Ribeño as a style, was you know, in 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 North Central Mexico and in, in Guanajuato, Querétaro, San Luis Potosí, the thought that there were musicians doing the same thing, you know, here, you know, or, or there in Austin was was too much to pass up. I was like, well, I got to meet these folks. And so I I did. I, I sought folks out and I met them. And and frankly, I, I, uh, I came to to that context and that community of musicians as a musician myself. So I, I was just playing music for a couple of years. I was not, there was no aspiration to like study, quote unquote, <laughs> this music or this community. Uh-huh. But, but you know, I guess to circle back, after, after sort of being in that context, you know, for that amount of time, um, and and getting a sense that I still wanted to go to school, uh, but I guess most importantly, having a particular window into that community because many of them were undocumented, many of them kind of were from that north central Mexican region. It, it was like a mirror for to me because it it reminded me so much of you know how I grew up and the people that I knew and family and all the rest, and so there was a. A sort of connection and understanding around, at the very least, like the 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 world of sort of migrant life that that was very familiar to me, and so as I was performing and playing music and and learning, I just all these questions started to emerge for me about the role this music played in kind of shaping that experience um, of kind of transnational migrant life, um, and so. With those questions in mind, I, I recall approaching both uh, Richard Flores and Jose Limon, who ended up being on my doctoral committee, you know, asking them, you know, and being familiar with their work at this 
point, you know, as as an undergrad, it's like, hey, so look, this is what I've been doing. So I basically telling them everything I just told you. <laughs> and, and and I was like, can I study this? And they're like, yeah, of course you can. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, well, what, how? And they were both like, well, anthropology would probably be the best. And I was like, okay, well, let's, let's see about doing that. And so <laughs> uh, for graduate school, and like I said, the, you know, the reason why I stayed at Texas, however, was because if you know anything about the sort of scholarly intellectual landscape when it comes to sort of anthropology, particularly anthropology of the borderlands, specifically focused on expressive culture or cultural forms in this regard, I mean, it, yeah, University of Texas is, is you know, has quite a robust history uh, and, and, and a, a really, it's kind of a really important place and point of reference for this you know genealogy of 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 you know intellectual work that that has explored those very issues you know amid this cross-section of yes cultural anthropology yes mexican-american studies border what we would call borderlands anthropology and of course ethnomusicology folklore linguistic anthropology like it's a quite unique place at an institutional level and so well, given what I was just about to embark on with respect to Wapango Rebeño as an, you know, as a topic, well, it just made sense to me. Well, why would I go anywhere else? You know, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no probably no other place that would be, you know, in my opinion, it, it, as kind of that that would provide the same kind of experience and training and and benefit of perspectives, multiple perspectives, uh, than Texas. So I I, so I stayed. Gotcha. Right. Right. I'm, you know, obviously this was new to me, uh, this musical form and genre, Wapengo Arribeño. Can you tell us more about, um, you've mentioned a little bit the region that the music comes from. Um, Can you tell us a a bit more about like the, the, the composition of of the groups, right? The roles, uh, you know, how many are in this group, what makes up an ensemble, what are their roles? Um, and, and I guess we'll begin with that, you know, so a little bit about that, you know, the genre, again, and the ensemble itself, uh, for those of us that aren't as familiar with it. Sure. So I guess um, let, let's start with the terms and then and then we can maybe situate the style and then kind of get specific around, you know, what the ensemble actually looks like. But, you know, Wapango as, as a term, I think is very familiar to, to many appreciators of Mexican music. And so uh, Wapango as a word is derived from the Nahuatl Guapanco, which uh, means atop of the wood. So, and that signifies like atop of the tarima or the wooden platform that, you know, a lot of Mexican string music particular is danced on you know so we, we we can all sort of imagine that right the zapatiado dance the, the sort of pattern of footwork so what does that indicate well the wapango i guess in, in in a way it references dance or ritual dance yes as a practice and also as a space because oftentimes people say vamos a ir a un wapango we're going to go to a wapango to a you know sort of social space um that's uh a performance that, that's that's centered around music and dance, uh, and and in a way, apart from ritual dance and the sort of the space of performance, um, wapango is also synonymous with uh, another term that that is 
a reference for the same thing, uh, and that's the fandango. The fandango, again, has a very long history, uh, colonial New Spain and Spain, uh, but this sort of space of performance center around music, making, dance, uh, and, and ritual poetry. So wapango means those things, but it also means quite specifically a, a rhythm, a rhythm that people are very familiar with. Uh, and there are different variants of that rhythm. And, and just, um, you know, you can, you know, banda interprets wapangos, musica norteña interprets wapangos, and of course, uh, musica de cuerda or string music uh, uh, also interprets wapangos, but but um, it's a signature rhythm, and it's a rhythm that you counted in three, and most people say it's in six, eight. It's this, uh, if I can sort of mouth it out, it's just When you hear that pulse, that six, eight pulse, and whatever variation, it, most appreciators of Mexican music so it can recognize that, oh, that's wapango. Um, so, you know, wapango arribeño, Arribeño is, you know, Highlander from up top, and that's a reference to the mountainous region of, of here where these three states come together, north central Mexico, which are Guanajuato, San Luis Potosí, and Querétaro. That's where this kind of the cradle of, of this particular music. Uh, now, um, just to kind of step back a little bit and give us some context here is, is um, Huapango in its variant forms, and, and they're largely only two, Huapango, Arribeño, and Huasteco. We can kind of get into that, but uh, it's sort of nested in this larger supra-genre of Mexican music that people call son. Uh-huh. There, are different ty- yeah, there are different types of son, you know, son de la tierra caliente, son jarocho, son ismeño, son huasteco, and, and the list goes on. Basically, what son is, is string music. Okay? Musica de cuerda, string music, meaning that you know, the primary instrumentation are, are stringed instruments, right? Different kinds of guitars, you know, vihuelas, jaranas, etc., violins, harps, things of that sort. And that's an important distinction to make because, you know, son as a supergenre music is distinctive in that regard. Uh, and, and also a couple other reasons too. Um, it's largely played in triple meter, uh, like Wapango. It's... Its primary lyrical conventions are uh, are Spanish poetic forms. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that, but why do I mention that? I mention that because it's important to distinguish son from other quite huge genres of Mexican music. Because we have to understand that the landscape of sort of vernacular traditional Mexican music is vast. It's huge. Right. Yeah. So son is one super genre, and it's distinguished from, let's say, Musica Norteña, accordion-based uh-huh. music from northern Mexico, which its its anchoring instruments are what? Well, the accordion and bajo sex, or you know, a brass and woodwind-based ensembles of banda, right? That come from uh-huh. the Pacific Pacific Coast region, and and we can, or even to think about the 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 epic ballad tradition that is the corrido, right? So uh-huh. it, you have all these genres, right? And among them are this kind of super genre called son string music played in triple meter spanish poetic forms are, are its primary lyrical conventions and among the different variants of son are wapango or the wapango variants and so uh you know the the wapango ribeño specifically to kind of cascade down here 
uh, yeah, comes from Guanajuato, San Luis Potosí, and Querétaro, that particular region. Um, the ensemble itself is made up of four instruments, uh, two violins, uh, a vihuela or jarana, which is smaller kind of stringed instruments, depending on who's playing. And then uh, this kind of larger eight-string modified guitar, very, very similar to the kind of typical guitar, but it's a bit different. It's called a guitarra quinta wapanguera, and that instrument is played by um, what in the tradition people refer to as a poet or a troubadour, un trovador, un poeta, who plays this kind of central role in the ensemble as you know someone who conveys through poetics, largely in, in the form of Spanish decimas, um, you know, uh, all manner of things. Uh, you know, they always have to have a sort of corpus of work that they both have memorized for any occasion. If it's going to be a wedding or it's going to be a the new year or in a helo or something like that, and they have to have sort of the ability to improvise as well. Um, and so, one last thing I'll mention in terms of you know that four-person ensemble and the central figure being the the poet or, or trovador. Uh, is that the um, kind of the ideal performance setting for for Wapango Ribeño is what's referred to as a topada from the verb topar to collide with, and what it is is where two ensembles engage in uh, a sort of ritual performance of kind of poetic and musical dueling, and this lasts for hours, so anywhere from eight to twelve hours of these musicians, these two ensembles going back and forth in this kind of, again, this dialogic, musical and poetic, you know, exchange uh, that, that lasts, you know, all night. Typically, it's, it's, it happens at night. Uh, and the way it's structured is that uh, these uh, raised wooden benches that are referred to as tablados, um, you know, the, both ensembles sort of, they, they straddle these one on either edge of a space in between them, which ostensibly serves as a dance floor. So you have one ensemble at one end and one ensemble out yonder at the other end and the dancing public in between. And these ensembles go back and forth having a musical and poetic conversation for hours while, you know, the, the audience dances through through the night. So that that's a topada. And, and they happen for different kinds of occasions, you know, weddings or again, the new year, patron saint festivity, all all manner of things. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. Thank you for that. It's, you've explained, the, obviously, very well the 
the not only you know the the origins the genre of it uh, uh appreciate that and so that's the musical aspect of it at least some of it um what that collides with and what you bring that into your work is you know the experience of migration particularly transnational you know mexico to us unauthorized migration um so bring that together for us you know in your book you know how does this experience of migration how does uh, you know how does that shape this genre how has it shaped this genre and and how does how is this uh this musical form this art form right also used by these performers or wapangueros uh as a way to translate right narrate describe their lived experience yeah certainly you know I said also kind of return to uh, what I was previously mentioning about um, when I was in the you know sort of in, in the kind of having the the experience of just playing music and, and being a student really and then a number of questions beginning to uh, to emerge for me in, in that in that setting, um, you know, I, I came to sort of be curious and interested in not just, you know, the how this music existed now in the States. In other words, like it's, it's sort of, it's as a form, it's migration to somewhere else. Um, but rather, you know, how it existed across multiple places or rather how it might perform a role in connecting people you know because you know these mobilities are not linear they never are Mm -hmm. and and, Mm -hmm. you know so 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 far more kind of productive or interesting or really true to life you know sort of concern or question or dimension of this is like well how how is this how does this music how does this sound how does this, this cultural form and practice participate in connecting people uh because it became somewhat apparent to me you know that one you know wapango performance was the sort of site of quite moving congregation um and moving in two senses i came to realize quite quickly moving in terms of uh quite literal embodied moving right like you know what I mean, these are violas. These are dances, right? This is this is what this is. It's a celebration. Es fiesta. The wapango es fiesta. So, moving in that embodied sense, and then also moving in the emotive sense, right? You know, like think of like being moved to tears, right? So, there there was an emotional kind of component to this uh, that you know the, the the sort of the the power of 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 both those sort of senses of moving to me, I, I became kind of interested in if, you know, and part of that animating interest to me was act, was actually performing, being, it, in a, you know, it, the embodied experience of performing there, right? So, and being alongside practitioners and doing, and being, you know, what we would call anthropology, right? Participant observer, et cetera. Those. Uh-huh. So, you know, that, the experience for me, you know, in terms of the power of kind of congregation in that regard to connect it kind of back to this, this sense of 
how it was participating in migrant life as a sound, as an experience, as a as a as a musical form, a cultural form. Um, I think then opened up this further set of questions that, you know, I guess were at the heart of what I was what I was noticing was was like why why I this was just far more than just like oh here's this music that exists here now like some sort of musical migration but right right yeah you know you know it it, it was the connectivity between places in these moments of congregation that became apparent to me in two different kinds of ways one what was being spoken about mm-hmm. was was quite powerful and two the actual movement of musicians and people across the border existing in both places in varied ways and varied capacities and and no matter what that this was this particular sound became part of the sort of the social fabric of that experience or or it was rather it, you know it came I, those things became apparent to me so you know i i i i would just say this you know connecting in that to to just this broader question of migration I think I, I kind of came down, you know, to to really embracing this much broader analytic that I was, you know, being trained at Texas and and kind of doing the kind of work that I w- I was doing in the classroom and and with my mentors. Um, that this sense of borderlands really came to 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 be top of mind for me as I was thinking about these things that I'm that I'm kind of conveying here. In the sense that you know, we have the scholarly field of border studies, right, which is is quite concerned with the kind of material conditions of the U.S.-Mexico border as a as a concrete physical place, and then we have this sort of metaphorical use of the borderlands uh, as you know as this kind of perspective that uh, speaks to the kind of liminal state of in betweenness, um, mm-hmm. right, and you know, I, but borderlands studies you know sort of integrates both of these perspectives right so you know and you can't have one without the other this is to say that you know when we think about for instance i I often give this example if we think about the border as a physical place today uh well it's the result of an imperial war in the mid-19th century well you know that imperial war is being driven by these sort of racial ideologies of westward expansion which are themselves right motivated by these particular kinds of borders that people are imagining between right sort of white sort of inheritors of 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 democracy and civilization and right those backward racialized right sort of savages etc right that are mexican native american african american and so that particular sort of cultural allegorical divide is the animating kind of energy the, the 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 sort of social energy behind westward expansion so you can't which results in the border that we know today so those racial ideologies are key to producing the border as a physical place and you know you fast forward to the 21st century they still continue to be, to, to be the case and so you know thinking you know about the materiality of the border in this particular migrant community's sort of lived experience yes it's about understanding how people move across back and forth and how policy shapes lives and how, you know, particularly this sort of juridical apparatus of illegality has a, has a lot to do with sort of, you know, how migrant lives are sort of 
um, structured and constructed and, and subjectivities are, are created and lived out. While at the same time, you have this entire immaterial kind of aspect of a migrant experience, which is sort of cultural, which is in this case embodied in music and sound and performance that, you know, to think about this borderlands perspective that takes into account both, you know, and, and which, mind you, Gloria Anzaldúa herself, you know, makes this distinction, right? She says, you know, that uh, a dividing line is a border and the emotional residue of an unnatural boundary is a borderland, right? So to me, that interplay between both the material and the immaterial became embodied in sound, particularly this this sound of Wapango Rivenio. And so what I came to sort of, you know, which is the book chronicles this, but, you know, where I sort of landed was that, you know, this is one particular embodied practice through which migrants lend meaning to their own migration. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that that's sort of the, the, the story here, you know, because there are a number of narratives that we hear about migration and migrants, right? Well, what, what are their narratives, right? What, what, what are, like, what are their stories or, or how are they lending meaning to that same sense of mobility and those same violences and those same experiences? Um, what 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 do they carry with them to you know to live out their lives amidst all of this? And so um, sometimes it's in these things that we might not think are 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 inherently political, and and they really aren't, but they happen and they unfold in contexts that make them politicized. Right. Yeah. I was I was exactly thinking that. Um, I'm thinking of. Uh, a few of your key interlocutors uh, in in this work, um, Don Lencho Olvera, Zenovio, uh, Homero, Graciano, and Salomon. Um, can you explain, um, you know, a- along the same line? I mean, you you, you mentioned towards, uh, I think, towards the latter part of the book that you you see these wapangueros as ethnog as nov- I'm sorry, ethnographers, right? Um, so doing such so much more, right? So much more than just um, performing, right? As entertainment, right? This is there, there's that aspect of it as you've explained, but there's there's so much more than that, right? And so the book follows their movements. Uh, I appreciate you 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 know bringing that up, right? Yeah, it's not it's not just a, a migration heading northward. Wapango, uh, Wapango Aribeño, you know, comes to us, and I think you mentioned like '80s, and but then it's like in the '90s that these these men, through networks, through their own migration patterns, they come together uh, and they start performing together. And so in this process of doing this and moving across borders, um, can you tell us more of, again, you know, what are they saying? Right? What, is, what is it that they are um, communicating to those willing to listen? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, so, you know, if well, let's let's take uh, let's take this anthropological analytic at its word here, right? So, uh, you know, ethnography as as you know, you go somewhere, you find something out, and then you sort of translate that, you know, in textual form, typically uh, of of some sort. Um, but you know, it, two two things are sort of going on here, uh, a, a number, but two that sort of kind of are, are kind of important to mention, I guess, in the context of this conver- conversation is, is that, you know, um, one, that in the sort of, within the purview of kind of 
the methodological practice of 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 ethnography and and finding something out and textualizing it you know me coming to understand what Bangoreño practitioners as uh, or or it as ethnographic and and what Bangueros is, is ethnography or ethnographers excuse me is you know really rooted in this understanding that the kind of experiential and narrative space of Wapango was shaped by this, these broader methodological and theoretical approaches in which that musical form itself was sort of, was unfolding, what was key to it, what was at its core, um, particularly its poetics, particularly its performance. Now, thinking of in, in those terms, I know requires perhaps a rethinking of ethnography beyond the ways it exists uh, in the kind of walls of academic institutions. But, you know, but there is, and I write about this, that there is kind of support for this kind of an approach, um, particularly in related con conceptualizations around the body and place and time, particularly in feminist theory, and I mentioned on mm -hmm. Saldua, and Saldua before, uh, you know, providing these kinds of theorizations. But what, what am I getting at? I'm getting at the fact that, you know, as I was exploring this music, exploring its performance, learning, uh, you know, being in these spaces, you know, and, and I write about this, I believe it's in the, the second chapter or the, or the Compañeros del Destino chapter, um, where I detail um, all the sort of threads and aspects and dimensions of performance practice. You know, I, these are things that I, and aspects of Wapango Rebeño as a form of performance uh, that I came to learn by doing it, you know, because, and what did I learn? Why I learned that there was this robust, incredibly robust theory of performance and methodology of performance that was integral, that was deep. Uh, and necessary to this performance style in terms of, in other words, the, these musicians and, and the audiences also had a sense of this, uh, that, that there existed these other kinds of analytics that were integral to performance. Again, in terms of a theory of performance and methodology, and what am I talking about? Well, it's when they say el destino or when they say reglamento or even the kind of the idea of compañeros del destino, like all these sorts of analytics and components of performance were key and central to its meaning, right, to the way in which it unfolds. And so, you know, this kind of forced me to really quite seriously, you know, take, you know, this performance and its, um, what it accomplishes uh, within the context of, of of its connection to communities, right? Um, that it required me to sort of take it at its own terms and understand it as an intellectual process of knowledge production. And so, there, and there's you know there's a power in that, and it's something that's not typical in how we think about doing anthropology, right? You know, and anthropology is quite sticky with its sort of residues of you know, coloniality and, and it particularly its, its heritage that, that it's, you know, has colluded with colonialism quite specifically where largely white male anthropologists went to other places to study, observe, 
people who were colonized, <laughs> right? And we have that sort of legacy that's integral to the discipline such that when anthropology is often done, it's sort of, you know, sort of it, it's participated in the, in, in the practice of kind of imposition of its own metapragmatic sort of models of culture and, and ethnography onto communities, right? To sort of, you know, explain things for them, right? In, in, in these quote-unquote objective ways, which, you know, it, it is, you know, nobody's ever objective. We all have an angle of vision. But, you know, anthropology tried to sort of cloak itself with that particular, those accounts as, as being authoritative. It's quite a different thing to engage with a community and, and, and try to understand their own sort of genres of communication and genres of performance and understand the intricacies of them. And, and not only that, but then understand the sort of power and weight that those you know, sort of modes of performance, modalities of communication that have their own power and that they're quite you know, sort of complex and, and, and they serve and a particular role and so for me understanding all those aspects of performance i sort of you know did this kind of 180 where taking those analytics to structure the, the way that i was trying to write and, and understand this experience as opposed to imposing my own <laughs> kinds of models of of understanding onto you know th you know this particular cultural form and community but rather using or borrowing from from what they were already sort of communicating and had developed in terms of again these analytics of el destino reglamento, all the sort of aspects of performance and and having those structure the writing, have those structure the inquiry. In other words, it's yeah, it's this realization like yeah, what they're doing is ethnographic in the sense of documenting experience, um, translating experience. I mean, isn't is that not? ostensibly what we traditionally think of ethnography being. And so in a sense, in performers, particularly poets themselves, I sort of thought of in a way as ethnographers. And and so, you know, in that regard, you know, to, to, to think about, you know, this as, as a kind of project of, an intellectual project of knowledge production, Huapango Rebeño itself, um, you know, I think a, a couple of things were, were going on here in terms of that realization. Uh, one is that, I guess to my previous point about how there's nothing inherently political about what's being said or being done, but it's the context in which it becomes politicized. And so I guess to circle back to your, you know, the second part of your question, is like, what were they talking about? Well, they were talking about everything. They were talking, I mean, there, there's a way that decimas really are sort of vehicle for documenting the work a day you know and so people talking about their journeys talking about their everyday lives but doing so in a way that existed and continues to you know sort of exist in contradistinction to the already received narratives about migrants and migrant lives that we're all saturated with both in popular culture and popular politics and political discourse and policy making and otherwise where we already have a conception of the immigrant or the migrant, or most egregious, the illegal, the drop and leave culprit, the anchor baby, the rapist, etc. Right? Where, yeah, that narrative space exists. It's quite powerful. We're all aware of it. But yeah, it's quite another thing that in the space of performance at three or four in the morning, 
in a crowd of thousands in the middle of central Texas when you have improvised decimas talking about those same community members as mothers and fathers, as daughters, sons, etc., giving a kind of specificity to their life, their biography, the places that they're from, but doing it in this incredibly public way, uh, in the moment, as everybody's being moved again, right? Quite literally, zapateando to this improvised poetry, right? <laughs> about about who these people are, but also being moved emotively, right? Uh, and and the connections that that entails, and the kind of cultural, social, and geographic mapping that's happening through poetry and performance that connects both. Uh, places in Mexico and, and, and the United States. And, and so, you know, the last thing I'll mention here, you know, in terms of your question, is like what was being communicated here? What was, you know, yeah, it was those kinds of stories and, and, and you know, that, that I sort of kept encountering and, and that I found, uh, you know, quite, quite sort of interesting, moving, compelling, and, and important uh to pay attention to, uh, but I guess yeah, this is my second point from before. What I found was, you know, and I, I make a case for, is that through the sort of space of performance and the labor of performance, what was the way in which these kinds of bridges were enacted, and which, which these sort of cultural, social, immaterial crossings were given voice to, where in moments of congregation and performance is when sort of people and places were kind of dragged into view, um, the listening and performing audience, where these sort of adjacencies would occur, where in a moment, two places seemingly disparate would fold together. Mm-hmm. And like, and, and like with uh a member of the crowd calling out, for example, to say hello to a friend somewhere else, or also as part of that, you know, the performance, you know, the narrative itself, combining those paces. Is that what you're referring to? Precisely. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so yeah, that one of the chapters, the, the Potosí to Tennessee chapter, yeah, takes precisely a moment of improvised performance that where someone in the audience asks, hey, can you say it? And this performance is taking place in San Luis Potosí, and this person in the audience asked the troubadour, hey, can you say hello to my friend in Tennessee? Now, on the surface there, right, that seems kind of, you know, kind of an absurd (laughs) request or um, suggestion to make, right? Because clearly at the kind of material level of sound, right, yeah, that person cannot hear (laughs) what the saludado from all the way but it doesn't matter. In other, in order for, right. in in order for everything I just mentioned and its sort of hearkening magic and power is meaningful and it's important because all those things have to be true in order for a poet to take up that request without hesitation. So uh-huh. yeah, of course, yes, of course I will. I'll say hi to this person in Tennessee because it's not. It doesn't. The, the the aim isn't so that uh, that person can hear right what what the person who the salo is requested for can hear it but rather how they are brought into that moment 
Yeah, there's like a longing for connection. Precisely, right? right? I mean, so, it's not. This is not just like a shout out, right? This is like the distinction we're trying to make. Right? This yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, there's exactly. something quite, I think, spiritual. Uh, I think, and incredibly intimate about that request, and again, hearing and mm. and um, honoring that request, right? Yeah, it, from the Wampangero who views this as his calling, his or her calling, right? Precisely, yeah, and and that's in some ways, right? This this. Yeah, you're definitely making these these wonderful connections in the sense that you know that request and and that practice in that moment is is one that's taken up seriously and you know it 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 makes sense both literally and figuratively. Like uh, figuratively, it makes sense and you know in the sense that it 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 has a logic to it. Like oh yeah, I understand the request, but it makes sense in the literal sense of like animates the senses you hear this and it stirs butterfly in your stomach you hear the kind of buzzing and burrowing in your ears and in that moment in that sense of elation this improvised verse is just as real as shaking somebody's hand so you know that entire hearkening magic i think really becomes apparent i I think once taking at their own word uh, and quite seriously, these what we might call the kind of vernacular analytics ar- around this particular performance form of Wapango Arribeño. And it speaks to, I think, you know, a, a word that, that you that you brought up that I that I do talk quite a bit about in the book. And that's the senses of intimacy. Right. The sort of embodied moment of connection um, and which, you know, lends me to, to sort of. Um, utilize this this analytic of of uh oral kind of poetics drawing on notions of uh of kind of, uh in anthropology and, and and other places this notion of of uh of cultural poetics but i i uh i lend the term some specificity here with notion of of orality uh you know the sort of the condition of listening and hearing um and how that you know, shapes, uh, it's through these sort of sonic uh, enactments that, um, of, of enactment and reception and their circulation, that it, it, it engenders a kind of intimacy, right, that is heard and therefore quite materially felt. But also how sound as a kind of envelope is one that's quite capacious with meanings. Like when you hear a sound, when we hear a song, when we hear a lyric, or we hear a poetic, uh, you know, the things and meanings and 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 ideas that that invokes, um, you know, possesses that 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 sort of that quality, and and so I I um I I use that as as an idea, uh, as an interpretive mode, right? Um, and I guess in part is is even just to think about the book's title, right? It's really to try and trace how it is that sounds resonance spreads in these sort of also ethereal forms, right? Through memory, which is both individual and cultural, through trauma or through storytelling, through repetition, but that it moves, right, through obstacles like social divisions and transmits the kind of vibration of its messages. It sort of pierces the divisions between things or across uh, uh, places. And so uh, it crosses. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, I, um, 
No, I don't want to have to wrap things up because it's uh, uh, what you do an incredible job of. Um, and what I really appreciate is, and I can only imagine the struggle it was to try to write in this way to bring the reader into that space. And that's what you, a lot of what you've been describing. Um, and I, I feel it again. I feel as if like when I was reading, you know, the text of what it's like to be in these spaces, whether that be in central Texas or Tennessee, you know, Memphis or, you know, Guanajuato or um, San Luis Potosí or wherever it may be, right? Um, but to actually be there, um, it's, uh, it's incredibly powerful. Um, so I thank you for that. And I thank you for taking time uh, to share with us your work. I wanted to give you both, again, the, the, the last word to either add anything you feel we, we haven't covered about uh, Papango Arribeño or Papangueros, uh, or, um, and to also maybe share and connect this to you know, the projects you're currently working on. Yeah, sure. No, well, thank you for, for the invitation to, to, to chat about, about, uh, about this work in particular, which you know, I still feel very close to, even though I'm sort of doing other, other work now, but um, you know, I, I lived a long time with, with, with this book, with this research, which grew out of my dissertation and, and subsequent research beyond that, um, that then, you know, became, became the book. And, um, you know, I, you know, for, you know, for those interested either, you know, in this music or, or, um, or in, in kind of engaging with, with the book, I, I do appreciate your, your, your words there in, in terms of, um, the writing um, of it, I, you know, it, 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 one hopes that, you know, or rather, you know, you, you don't know how things are going to be. We put things out in the world, and you don't know how they're going to be received. And I felt very fortunate that a lot of people seem to have connected with, with this particular book and this work. And, and I think, you know, perhaps one aspect of that is kind of what you mentioned in terms of how it's written and i will say that you know the inspiration for writing and the style that i did was precisely the sort of the poetics of, of wapango it's, itself right i mean the challenge was to 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 try and you know represent the the vibrancy the sort of uh the intimacy uh sort of sensing uh that that is so much a part of this world of performance um and it, you know so that th th i took my cue from from that to try to to try to mirror what what, what i was experiencing you know ethnographically uh you know and, and as a performer too and so um so i think that that's that's kind of one element there that that that's that was i think definitely part of the character of, of what the book is and what it's become for people and how people connect with it and um you know one thing i was able to do to extend the kind of reach and life of the book was i, I worked with the smithsonian smithsonian folkways to produce an album actually just prior to when the book came out um it's called Serrano de Corazón. It features Guillermo Velázquez y los Leones de la Sierra de Hichu. And Guillermo Velázquez and those musicians, are they all populate the book. They're all there. <laughs> they're, they're all over the book. And so they're friends of mine. I've known them for a long time. And and um, 
long story short, I, I had this opportunity to work with the Smithsonian, uh, who at that point the curator was Dan Sheehy. And um, yeah, and we, we, it took us a few years, but we, we went down to Querétaro and made a record and, and it came out on Smithsonian Folkways. It was, it was a really amazing experience. I, I encourage people to, to check it out as well. It's um, available on most streaming platforms, but also if you go online and just search, you know, uh, Smithsonian Folkways, Huapango Arribeño, you'll, you'll find uh, so actually some really interesting videos of, of what we did in the studio, of, of performance and, and all the rest. And and also if, if on the Smithsonian Folkways website, um, you can download the liner notes, which uh, was actually a really great experience. I got to write them. Uh, and that's one of the things that I love about Folkways Records is they have these really amazing liner notes. Uh, so I, I had the opportunity to uh, to um, to curate them myself. So that was great. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, beyond that, I mean, I, I continue to, you know, uh, write and perform. And I, I, I have multiple projects that I'm working on musically, whether my own or collaborating with others. And as you mentioned at the beginning, some stuff around film, some collaborative projects to uh, 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 across kind of multiple or, or with multiple collaborators, uh, Mexico and the United States, just kind of work that I continue to do. Um, and uh, research-wise, I've been, it's interesting, I'm, I'm, I've sort of pivoted to uh, Chicago, where I live, to do uh been working a few years now with this project on sound and sound and Latinos in in the city is kind of like uh, question of urbanism and space and place making uh, in relation to to the kind of racialized experience of Latinos in the city and how sound is is what one way of telling that story and and, and it's um it's kind of interesting because it's sort of the opposite of what I've done so whereas in in <laughs> In Sounds of Crossing, you know, I was looking at multiple places and how one sound existed across these places, right? This is the opposite. It's how multiple sounds exist in this one particular site, which is the city of Chicago. So it's kind of a, a, a different kind of approach. But, uh, but you know, it's been, been good work and, um, um, you know, just kind of working away on that and uh, trying to get things out there based on it. So, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And uh, again, Alex, thank you for your your time and for uh, visiting with us on New Books and Latino Studies. No, thank you for having me and I really enjoyed it. <laughs>